All right. Well, today we are uh, looking at a story in the Bible. By the way, if you want to go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, that's where we will uh, be reading here in just a few minutes. We're looking at a story in the Bible that if it were a Hollywood movie, you would probably have to be at least 17 to gain entrance to the movie. Uh, It would definitely have an R rating. It might even have an NC-17 rating. And by the way, the message today might approach a PG-13 rating. So I don't think we have anybody under ninth grade in here, so I think we'll be okay. But uh, it's a story that's full of lust. It's a story full of deception. It's a story full of abuse of power, full of adultery, full of scandal, full of murder. And every one of those descriptions that I've just offered of this story are descriptive of the actions of one of the Bible's most towering figures, one of the Bible's most central figures, a man who we know, who the Bible represents, as being a man after God's own heart. In many ways, this is an embarrassing story, uh, very embarrassing. Uh, And I would just say on that, that it really is a story that demonstrates the authenticity, the trustworthiness of the Bible. Because a book that is written as propaganda would never include this story about one of its central figures, one of its greatest heroes. It just wouldn't do it. Uh, The story is found in the 11th and 12th chapters of 2 Samuel. Uh, It's the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, here are the basics of the story. I'm just going to go through the basics that are covered in uh, chapter 11, and then we'll read chapter 12 together. Uh, One day, King David got up out of bed and went to the roof of his palace to to walk around. We're not told why, but, but that's what he did. As he was pacing around the roof, he could look down on surrounding dwellings in the area. And over across the way a bit, he noticed a woman bathing. Now, here is the first application for our message today. It is always best to do your bathing inside. Okay, so lots of trouble can be avoided if everybody just takes their bath indoors. So, uh, first lesson for the day. David noticed, and the Bible tells us this, that the woman was very beautiful. And instead of, you know, having her beauty register and then moving along, which would not have been sinful, David stopped and allowed himself to gaze upon her. I think that these days that's called being a creeper. Uh, so, So one of the greatest men in the Bible was also a creeper. And... And uh, he lusted after her. And then he went beyond lusting and he actually put action to the lusting by inquiring about who she was. He was informed that she was the daughter of uh, Eliam, a prominent man in the city, and the wife of Uriah, one of David's most trusted men who happened to be off at this very moment fighting on behalf of King David. Of course, that news should have stopped David dead in his tracks, but it didn't. David sent messengers to bring her to him. 
she was brought to him and he slept with her, which is a kind way of saying that he had sex with her and then he sent her home. Now, you know, Bible stories are sometimes fairly condensed, so we don't know all of the details of this. We don't, we don't know if this was a one-time thing or if this was an ongoing relationship. But however it was, it came that Bathsheba uh, became pregnant after sleeping with David, and she sent word telling him that she had become pregnant. Now, the Bible is very careful to include the information that they had sex with one another after she had purified herself from her uncleanness, which is a reference to ritual cleansing that took place after menstruation. The point of sharing this information, the point of the Bible letting us know this, is to make it very clear that Bathsheba was not pregnant before being with David. And to make it very clear that there was absolutely no chance that Uriah was the father of this child. So David, panic-stricken, as men are inclined to become when such things happen, devised a plan to try to cover up his relationship with Bathsheba. And so David's first plan was that he went to the commander of his army to have Uriah sent back to Jerusalem under the guise of reporting on how the soldiers were doing and how the war was going. And what his real purpose was is he wanted to bring Uriah home and have him sleep with Bathsheba so that it could appear as though she had become pregnant by her husband. Uriah, however, would not cooperate with the plan. He felt that such action would be inappropriate for him when his fellow soldiers were off facing such hardship. This was a commendable man. And so David tried another tactic. He got Uriah drunk and hoped that by getting him drunk, he would go home to his wife and sleep with her. Uriah still did not go home. So David's plan, plan A, plan B, to cover his sin had failed and his desperation grew. And so he goes to an unthinkable place. He sends Uriah back to the front lines of the army and he instructs Joab the commander to place Uriah at the place where the fighting will be the fiercest and then deliberately pull the rest of the soldiers back away from the fighting and allow Uriah to be there alone, become surrounded, and be killed. Now, Joab likely thought that that was going to be too obvious, and so he tried something a bit more subtle. He decided to attack a city that they had uh, held under siege. He decided to attack it at the place where it would be the most heavily defended. And rather than pulling others back, he decided to go ahead and sacrifice uh, some others so that it would not look uh, as obvious. At least I think that's why uh, he did it. And so Uriah, as well as other of the soldiers, died. Now, it was a foolish approach militarily. And Joab knew that since it wasn't exactly what David had suggested, that David was going to be perplexed as to why he had made such a foolish uh, military, um, devised such a foolish military uh, strategy. And so he instructed the soldier that was going to take word back to David about what had happened to make sure 
that at the end of the report, he included this information, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And he was right. What normally would have caused David to react very negatively uh, didn't happen this time. David heard that last report, and so he was fine with what had happened. In fact, he sends a message back to Joab. It is a despicable message. He says to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Now, here's what you have to understand. That phrase is something almost identical to something such as, oh, well, such is a soldier's fate. Or, oh, well, we all have to die sometime. Despicable. After a period of mourning, David brought Bathsheba to his house and she became his wife. She gave birth to their son. So David is guilty of lust. He is guilty of abuse of power deception, adultery, and murder. But Uriah is dead. And David looks like he's gotten away with his sin. The chapter ends this way. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Those are sobering words. The meaning of this phrase is probably more literally, the matter that David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David thinks he's gotten away with it. He thinks he's hidden his sin, but God has seen it, and God is displeased. And this brings us to chapter 12, where I want to read verses 1 through 18. There is probably about a year lapse between chapter 11 and chapter 12. A year in which David very likely thinks that he has covered his sin and gotten away with it. And then chapter 12 happens. And here's what we read. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, and perhaps the boldest thing that is recorded in Scripture, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? 
You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. I'm going to read verse 19 as well. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. From this story and these two chapters of the Bible, I want to draw out some thoughts on these four things. Sin, repentance, forgiveness, and then one that people want to think does not belong in any list alongside forgiveness, but it does, consequences. Consequences. First sin. David, this man after God's own heart, this figure that looms so large over the Bible and salvation history, this one who wrote, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, this one chosen by God to lead his people because God saw his heart and liked what he saw, this same David sinned, and he sinned in a way that we might describe as big time, lust, Adultery, deception, abuse of power, murder. How does this happen to such an exemplary figure as David? Well, we find some circumstances that place David in a very dangerous, a very vulnerable position. Chapter 11 begins by telling us that in the spring when kings go off to war... David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David stayed in Jerusalem. David stayed in his palace. The time of year when kings go off to war, but David, who was always before this, personally led his men into battle. This time sends Joab to lead them, and he stays behind. He neglected his business. He was not where he was supposed to be. He was taking it easy. This was a time in David's life when he had fulfilled many of his goals. He was experiencing fulfillment and satisfaction. The pressure was off of him a little bit. He now lived in a palace. 
instead of a cave. He was surrounded by comfort and convenience. You know, prosperity can be a really good thing, but it can also be a very dangerous thing. And in this time of taking it easy, not being where he should have been, experiencing satisfaction and prosperity, he sees a beautiful woman bathing and he indulges the lust of his eyes. All of these things create a dangerous environment that make people very vulnerable to sin. If you are finding yourself, and probably most of us would say, how could this be? But if you're finding yourself with too much time on your hands, you're in a dangerous situation. You need to be careful. When you find yourself regularly not being where you're supposed to be, neglecting responsibilities and hanging out somewhere other than where your responsibilities would have you, you're in a dangerous situation. When you allow your eyes or your heart to begin to lust after another person or after some possession, not just appreciate something as uh, beautiful or, or, or not just notice that someone is beautiful and say, oh, okay, they're, they're beautiful. Now let's go on with my life. But you actually begin to lust after that thing or that person. First of all, you are already sinning, but you are putting yourself in a very dangerous situation for further sin. And I have to say this here today. I'm a big fan of prosperity. I think prosperity is a good thing. I, I think prosperity is better than lack. Uh, I, 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 I just can't be convinced otherwise. But here's the truth. Prosperity is also a very dangerous thing. Our comfort and prosperity as a nation, uh, lessening each month, by the way, but uh, has been a blessing to us in many ways. But also in many ways, it has become a curse to our nation. A. Stephen, a church planner in southern India before his death, a man who was disowned by his Muslim family when he came to faith in Jesus, a man who was literally beaten for his faith in Christ, when asked if it was more difficult to be a Christian in India or the United States, with no hesitation whatsoever, said that it is much more difficult to be a Christian in the United States. And the reasons he gave, he gave two, they were this, because our prosperity convinces us that we do not need God and because our culture is so overtly sex-saturated. I think he's right. You know, sometimes it is the grace of God that keeps us from more prosperity. Some of us may never have the prosperity we desire in this life. And in some cases, that might be the grace of God. Because he knows what would happen to us if we had more. You know the story of the lottery winners, right? Increased prosperity often enables further sin more time for sin. To avoid the sin of David, we need to be alert to these warning signs. We need to avoid the dangerous setup that David had allowed into his life. And one of the great lessons of this story is this warning. Even the best and the strongest and the most faithful among us 
can fall. None of us are above the reach of sin. None of us are so righteous, so holy, so close to God that we're immune to sin, even the worst kind of sin. So we must never let our guard down. We must never become complacent. And I want you to notice the progression of David's sin. First it was lust, then it's adultery, then it's deceit, and finally murder. So many of us kind of play around with the enemy. We, we play around with sin. We, we dabble in sin. But friends, you cannot dabble in sin. As soon as you let the enemy, as soon as you let sin just squeeze its toe in the door, before you know it, it's taken up residence in your house and owns the whole thing. That's just the way the enemy is. That's just the way sin is. And this progression of sin that we see in David's life reminds me of a devastatingly true statement I first heard from someone whose life later demonstrated the truthfulness of the statement. It's this, sin will take you further than you ever intended to go, keep you longer than you meant to stay, and cost you more than you ever dreamed you'd pay. So true. And here's something that I feel I need to say loud and clear. Something that remains true in 2014, no matter how many people believe something else, sin displeases God. Sin displeases God. I feel like I say that around here a lot. And I'm just going to, you know, kind of let you in on a little secret about me. Sometimes I feel like I need to chill out and not say it so much. But can I tell you why I think I say it so much? Because the Bible says it so much. Sometimes I approach a text that I know I'm about to preach on with some general knowledge of the text and how I think I'm going to preach on it. And I get kind of excited thinking, you know, this is going to be one of those really feel-good sermons. And in this one, I'm not going to have to say anything about sin. And by the time I'm done studying, I've decided that to be faithful to the text, I've got to talk about sin. I've got to tell you it's bad. I've got to tell you to stop doing it. So I say it so much because the Bible says it so much. The Bible talks about sin a lot because even though we've all convinced ourselves that sins are really just little oopsies, the reality is that sin displeases God. It is evil in his eyes. He sees it, he calls it evil, and it displeases him. And I worry that too many Christians and too many churches aren't talking about sin enough. We have convinced ourselves that saying things like, don't tell me what you're against, tell me what you're for, are profound statements. It's not a profound statement. You see, God is both for things and God is against things. And so we must be for things and against things. God is for what is good for you. And so he's against sin because it's not good for you. And I would say even more than that, 
God is for his own honor and glory. And when we sin, we dishonor God, so he's against that. And we must be against that. Sin displeases God. And we learn something else. Verse 9 of chapter 12. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Now, we have to understand that God and his word are one. Why did you despise the word of the Lord has the same meaning as why did you despise me? In fact, that's the way some translations of the Bible uh, translate this here. Sin displeases God. And when we sin, we despise God's word. We despise God. Despise is a strong word. It's an appropriately strong word. Despise means to regard with contempt. It means to regard as worthless. God is saying that in sinning, David despised his word, despised him. David, the man after God's own heart, regarded God as worthless. Is our sin any different? Absolutely not. Sin isn't a little mistake. It is regarding God's word, regarding God with contempt, regarding God as being worthless. Sin displeases God, no matter how many people act like it's no big deal. Now let's see what we find about forgiveness. The prophet Nathan did something very brilliant here. He presented David with a case in order to secure David's judgment on the matter. And what what it really was, was getting David to pass judgment on precisely what he had done in his sin with Bathsheba. And so when Nathan took him through that story and David uh, hears that, we're told that David burned with anger at the injustice of the rich man taking the poor man's lamb and he passed this judgment, the man deserved to die. But David would permit him to live provided he paid for the lamb four times over. Interestingly, David's own sin was punishable by death. When David pronounces this judgment, did I say when David pronounces this judgment? When David pronounces this judgment, the prophet Nathan immediately confronted him with this truth. He says, you are the man. And then he proceeds to call out the specific sins that David had committed, adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Now understand that David is the king. What he says goes. What he commands happens. He absolutely could have ordered Nathan put to death for daring to confront him in this way. Nathan is one of the bravest figures in the Bible. He stood before a monarch and called him to account for his sins. David could have had Nathan killed, but that's not what David did. Verse 13 tells us how David responded. Once again, illustrating how in spite of his awful sins, he was a man after God's own heart. 
Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Through Nathan, David heard the voice of God. Nathan articulated the words, but David knew that it was God speaking to him. David knew that it was God calling him to account. And so David does not react angrily. He doesn't harm Nathan, but instead he does what every sinner must do. He admits the truth about himself. He responds very simply, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all. That's all he says. He offers no explanation. He offers no defense because there is none. He simply acknowledges the truth. Now, those of you who have been with us throughout this series, you may remember that when Saul was confronted by Samuel, it was a very different story. He offered all types of explanations. He blamed other people. He tried to twist things to to make obvious disobedience look like obedience. David doesn't do any of that. He offers one lonely, truthful sentence. I have sinned against the Lord, and that is it. Friends, here is something that we all need to know about repentance. It's important for you to know this. True repentance doesn't explain, blame, or dodge. True repentance does not explain why you've committed the sin. True repentance doesn't blame another person or circumstances for the sin. True repentance doesn't dodge responsibility for the sin. True repentance is marked by this one lonely sentence, I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. And notice that while David sinned against many people, he acknowledges that his sin was against the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that he failed to grasp that he had wronged many people. It is a simple acknowledgement that all sin is ultimately against God. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against those soldiers who became collateral damage to his scheming. But in all of that, he sinned against God. We can never pretend that the wrongs we commit are limited to the people we wrong. All sins are ultimately against God. When you cheat on your spouse, you have sinned against God. When you lie on your tax return, as understandable a temptation as that is, you have sinned against God. When you gossip and spread false rumors against someone, you have sinned against God. When you commit a secret compromise to your integrity, no one even knows about it. No one ever finds out about it. God still knows. And you have still sinned against God. True repentance doesn't explain, blame, or dodge It simply admits the truth. And true repentance is full of remorse and sorrow. I'm not going to take the time to read from there today, but uh, consider this week reading the 51st Psalm. 
It is the psalm David wrote in response to this situation, in response to this sin. And in reading it, you hear great remorse and sorrow in David's voice. You, you, you can just feel in reading it the remorse and sorrow that David felt as a result of his sin. Now listen, I have been a Christian long enough. And I've been a pastor long enough now that I've seen too many people present themselves as repentant while the evidence simply did not back up their claim. You should not be surprised if people have a hard time believing that you're repentant if you explain, blame, and dodge. Don't be surprised if people struggle to believe you're repentant if there's no evidence of remorse or sorrow. And in saying those things, I can anticipate this response from some of you. No one else needs to be convinced of my repentance. Who are they to judge my repentance? That's between me and God. Okay, well, you're wrong about that on a number of levels, but okay, we'll, we'll let, let that go for now. Don't be surprised if God is not convinced of your repentance. If you explain, blame, or dodge. Don't be surprised if God is not convinced of your repentance, if there's no remorse and no sorrow. You know, human beings can be extremely foolish. Have you, have you noticed this? We think we can fool God. We think because the words, I repent, come out of our mouths, that God somehow doesn't know if it's sincere or not. But he does. You can't fool God with pretend repentance. You either are or you aren't. And God knows. He knows the difference. This is what true repentance looks like. One lonely statement. I have sinned against the Lord. So we've looked at sin. We've looked at repentance. And now we come to forgiveness. Look at verse 13 again. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. The penalty for David's sin is death. But in response to David's repentance, the Lord has taken away his sin and he will not die. Here is a wonderful truth that springs out of these pages. True repentance is met instantly with forgiveness. No beating yourself up, no, you know, run a marathon and then I'll consider forgiving you. You know, no give $5,000 to the church and then I'll forgive you, although... That doesn't hurt anything, um, but, but nothing, nothing like that. Just true repentance is met instantly with forgiveness. Friends, you cannot sin any worse than David. Lust, adultery, deception, abuse of power, murder. And yet when David repented, God instantly 
forgave him. He did so because David's repentance was genuine. And because as the Bible makes clear from beginning to end, God is compassionate and gracious. He is quick to forgive us. No matter what you've done, no matter how secret your sin, no matter how frequent your sin, no matter how awful your sin, no matter how culturally acceptable your sin, when you truly repent, when you honestly, genuinely repent, God instantly forgives you. Like Nathan assured David, when we repent, when you repent, these words apply to you. The Lord has taken away your sin. What wonderful news that is. We deserve death, but God takes away our sin and he removes the penalty of our sin. Are you thankful for that today? And if you're here today and you need to repent, you need to be reminded of this. When you do, God will instantly forgive you. And this is the point where everyone wants the sermon to conclude. We've talked about sin. We've talked about repentance. We've talked about forgiveness. We're in a positive place. So let's put a bow on it and just go to our Mother's Day celebrations. But we can't. We just can't. Not if we want to be faithful to what the story actually teaches us. Not if we want to be faithful to the Bible's consistent message about sin. To do those things, we have to engage one more topic. And here's the truth. One of the reasons that sin is such a horrible thing is because even sin that is forgiven by God still has consequences. David was forgiven by God. He was spared the penalty of his sin, death, but there were consequences for his sin. And for David, the consequences were severe. Now, sin's consequences, thankfully, are not always as severe as what they were for David. But they can be. And whatever the level of severity, there are always consequences for sin. You, you just can't sin and there not be some consequences. I want you to consider the, the, the severe consequences for David. Verse 9, second sentence. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Three of David's sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, died violent deaths. Now, the Bible doesn't really explain to us how this consequence exactly resulted from what David did. But the deaths of David's sons are tied to his sin very clearly by the scripture. The consequences for David were severe. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. David's own son Absalom did exactly that. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 16. The consequences were severe. 
David's children brought in grief. His family was torn apart by bloody conflict. His sin was exposed publicly. He's forgiven the whole time. But the consequences were severe. And then we come to this perplexing, devastating consequence of David's sin. Nathan assures David his sin is taken away and he will not die. And then here's the very next thing that comes out of his mouth. But because by doing this, you made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. And then verse 15, one of the most difficult verses in the entire Bible. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became ill. Verse 18, on the seventh day, the child died. He's forgiven. But the consequences were severe. Of course, when we read something like the Lord struck the child, it causes huge questions in our minds. Causes big problems for us. Questions that aren't easily answered and that I can't answer in a neat and tidy way for you here Today, I'll share with you what Kenneth Chafin, once the Billy Graham professor of evangelism at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary says about this. He, he wrote, in understanding Nathan's interpretation of the child's illness, we need to separate the physical cause and the religious interpretation and application. Whatever the child's illness, both Nathan and David saw it as connected with David's sin and raised no questions about it as we do. That's as much help as I can provide you with that. That's, that's all I've got for you on that one. But I do know this. We ought not get hung up on that concern and miss the point that the text is making. The point is, sin has consequences. Even when we are forgiven by God, sin still has consequences. David was forgiven. But all of these consequences came after being forgiven. We want to convince ourselves. We so much want it to be true that once we repent and are forgiven, then all consequences for our sin are removed. But it's not true. You cannot sin and not get burnt. It is simply an impossibility. It is one of the things that makes sin so dangerous, that makes sin so awful, is that even forgiveness does not take away the consequences. Spares you from the penalty of death, which is a great thing, but it does not spare you from all the consequences. And here's another awful aspect of your sin, and I am hurrying to a close. You cannot contain it. There is always collateral damage. Always. Think of the collateral damage of David's sin. Joab's integrity is compromised. Uriah dies. Other soldiers had nothing to do with anything. Died. David's family is a mess. His children despised him. His family is torn by bloody conflict. Three of his sons die violent deaths. The child conceived with Bathsheba dies. 
And though we don't understand how all of that works, how it all ties together, the scripture is very clear that all of this is a consequence of David's sin. Friend, you cannot sin in a neat and tidy way. There is always collateral damage. And often the damage occurs to those to whom you are supposed to be a blessing. But instead, your life brings unbelievable trouble upon them. David's forgiven, faces severe consequences, and we need to understand this. The consequences last the rest of his life. Here are a few things I found from various commentators this week that illustrate the severity of the consequences for David. J. Vernon McGee wrote this, David had many triumphs, but from now on to his dying day, he will have trouble. Bill Arnold, beginning with the death of Bathsheba's newborn, David's life is plagued by manifold problems. Kenneth Chafin, and this is the one that I just thought was so impactful. The shock waves that began in a lustful heart on a rooftop were still being felt when David lay dying. The consequences were severe and they lasted a lifetime. Forgiven, but a lifetime of consequences. Friends, sin simply is not worth it. Now chapter 18 ends on a hopeful note. Solomon is born to David and Bathsheba. And we discover that in spite of David's sin, God will stay true to his word to establish his kingdom forever through David's line. But David must live with the consequences of what he's done for the rest of his life. Sin will take you further than you intended to go keep you longer than you meant to stay and cost you more than you ever dreamed you'd pay. May we be people who flee from sin, who surrender to Christ, who please the Lord and who avoid the pain of sin's consequences. Why don't you stand?